0: Hello, and welcome to Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, a conversation with Bill Rapp. Bill is an author of eight books in a couple of series featuring PI Bill Heiberman and his current series uh, featuring um, Carl, okay, what was the last name again? Carl Beyer. (laughs) Carl Beyer, a U.S. military officer stationed in Berlin, Eastern Europe um, during the Cold War. Um, Rapp is a graduate of Notre Dame with a degree in history and German, University of Toronto has a master's in European history, and Vanderbilt. Um, Oh, I have Ph.D. in Vanderbilt. What, what did you get your Ph.D. in, Bill? In European right. history. European so, history. Yeah. Absolutely. And you were an academic for a while. And then you decided to uh, go work for the CIA. And you worked for 38 years there as an analyst and a diplomat. Mm-hmm. And the career has taken you to uh, Berlin and Ottawa, Turkey, Baghdad, London, with uh, stopovers in Washington, D.C., and then after your career there you took to writing um, mysteries and thrillers so I guess the first question then with that type of background with that long-term background in the CIA why did you start with uh, a a private investigator series
1: well actually when I was in grad school to take a break from reading all those history books I would uh, periodically pick up uh, detective thrillers I uh, and I just fell in love with the the American hard-boiled noir detectives of Raymond Chandler, Ross McDonald, Dashiell Hammett. And I always, in the back of my mind, thought, gee, I'd really like to, to write, uh, to, to take a stab at that because I enjoy reading them so much and their, their ability to tell that story. So that's why I started with the private eye homes. Uh, and I was kind of, I really didn't know what to do, just how to set them up. And it was my wife who suggested, says, well, you're supposed to write what you know. Why don't you set them in your hometown area? They're outside Chicago. So those were the first three books I wrote. Actually, the first book I wrote was Berlin Breakdown, which was set against the fall of the wall. And I thought, if I'm going to try and be a writer and I can't use my experiences in, uh, in Berlin, when the wall fell and Germany reunified, unified, I haven't got much hope as a writer. You know? So that was the first one I wrote. I refer to that as the book I learned to write on. And, and then I did those private eye novels. And it was only later that I switched to spy fiction. Uh, which I really felt allowed me to combine, if I set it in the Cold War, to combine my experiences uh, working with the CIA, along with my my one of my real passions is this history, particularly European history, and that's why they I set those stories in Cold War Europe, uh, and that's also where I focused most of my career at the agency. It was in Europe. Um, obviously, I didn't experience the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s work for the CIA. I was a little bit too young then. Um, but uh, that sort of gave me that that inspiration to to make that transition.
0: So, okay. So you just you decided that you just wanted to um, use your CIA experience, but you you also I assume did a lot of reading in in thrillers as well, set in in oh, sure. espionage books too. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yes, You're- I did, and and um, I've always was uh, attracted most to the works of somebody like. Um, uh, uh, Charles McCary who uh, said his stuff actually a lot of his his character his main character uh, operates in Germany post-war Germany right after the war and I really liked the way he would blend in a lot of the history and made his character so unique he would write German poetry as a hobby sort of thing and I thought that you know that was really enjoyable and I enjoyed uh, the works of Eric Ambler as well and uh and more recently the uh there are uh, a number of, of books that uh, actually point to what I like and what I don't like about um, the, the current genre and, and the people who practice it. I mean, they're all very accomplished writers, um, but the uh, the thing that bothers me about that is that it's they're really, very very have a very tenuous connection to the real world of espionage and intelligence work. And I thought one of the things I wanted to do was try and give readers uh, a more of a sense of just why we do espionage, why we have intelligence communities and the contribution they make and why it's important and the challenges to doing that. And that's really one of the things I try and convey in the, the uh, Carl Byer stories. Mm-hmm. So I tell people that what a lot of those stories miss, uh, aside from a lot of, sort of obvious problems with having a lot of assassins running around, which isn't the real world, unless you work for the, the Russian services, obviously, um, and everybody's always running around with their cell phones at work. And that really, really bothers me. And my wife who also uh, worked at the agency and that's where I met her. In fact, we were just watching uh, the new series based on the Nick Heron books, which are really very enjoyable books to read uh, with the, the Slow House group there at Misfits. Um, and the head of uh, the operations for MI5 is in this operation center and she's got her cell phone with her the whole time. You know, at the agency, you're not allowed to bring your cell phone into work. In fact, you're supposed to turn it off as soon as you drive on the grounds. So there's those, but I also wanted to make sure that people got a sense of where we fit in the whole process of Washington policymaking process. You know, there's a political context, there are geopolitical and strategic objectives in everything we do. And I try and convey that as well in these stories.
0: When I was talking with my wife about uh, interviewing you, um, she has spent some years in the Navy working in buildings without windows, and she wanted to ask me ask you specifically: Do you have to have the CIA vet
1: your work? Yes, I do. Um, When you first join, you sign your secrecy agreement, which uh, obligates you for the rest of your life—not just while you work there, but for the rest of your life—to submit your work for pre-clearance. And uh, fortunately. Since my books are set far enough in the past and they're fiction, there's not that much of a challenge. I usually hear back from them within a couple of weeks. And as long as I am not um, revealing any current operations or current personnel or even past cases that might still have some implications for people today and an impact on their life today. And I've been able to avoid that. So I haven't had a problem getting my stuff cleared.
0: Well, that's good. That's good. So you haven't had anything. They didn't come back, come to you and say, take this, uh, take this little
1: bit out here. This is still uh, active. No, No, they did not. Fortunately, (laughs) I also had to, you mentioned that article I wrote for the cipher brief. I also had to submit that, of course. And I was a little concerned there because that's nonfiction. And one of the things they always worry about is if even though you may not be uh, working or representing the agency in any particular way, as a f- employer, or former employer, are you appearing to endorse certain policy uh, objectives or whatnot? And in this one, I, I don't think I, I did. And, and I didn't have problem get that, any problem getting that one cleared either. Yeah. So. No, no, it sounded like and, and
0: to, to, to tell people you were writing about Vladimir Putin and what you conceive as his objectives, uh, with the war in Ukraine and his his particular policies. And yeah, it was, there was nothing about a political opinion of any kind in there. It was yeah. basically an analysis of what he has said and what he may be trying to accomplish.
1: And it was very, uh, I thought it was very good. I put on, thank you. I, I put on my old hat as a CIA analyst, CIA analyst on that one.
0: Yeah. Well, to, and to back up for a moment, you know, as mm-hmm. I
1: understand, of course, you,
0: you actually went after you, uh, you graduated with your
1: degrees. You were actually in academia. You were a, a professor, right? Yes. And, and as far as I was concerned, when I was in grad school at Toronto and Vanderbilt, that was going to be my future uh, teaching as a professor in, in European history. And I went to uh, uh, Iowa State as an associate professor for a guy who was on sabbatical, taught European history for a year. I actually signed a tenure track contract for the University of Arkansas, Little Rock to go teach European history down there. Um, but I had always had some applications in the way I took the Foreign Service uh, exam and passed that, both the, the, the written and the orals. Uh, I was put on the, uh, you know, on the political cone to, to see if they were going to hire me. Uh, but I had also contacted the CIA about work there because I'd always had a, an interest, even as a child, in, in foreign affairs, international affairs, foreign policy and things. So uh, uh, I think. The summer before I went down to Little Rock, I sat long and hard considering whether or not, you know, which path that I wanted to take. And I just thought, oh, what the heck, I'm going to go to the work for the agency. I informed uh, Little Rock, Arkansas Little Rock, about my decision and uh, loaded up my Mustang and headed to Washington, D.C. and never looked back.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's going to be a lot more uh, interesting career, interesting <laughs> and varied career than than staying in academia.
1: Yeah. I used to tell people it was a little, it wasn't as sedentary as being an academic uh, pro- professional was. So, uh, and that was true.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, just out of curiosity then, and I'm not asking you to reveal anything about what you're doing is just about the places that you stayed and visited were so varied. What would be, what would be your favorite place or your most evocative place that you visited?
1: I, you know, I was, I was speaking to my daughter's, um, uh, class in international affairs uh, at American University one day, and I got that question, You know, which assignment did I like the best? I said, you know, it's kind of tough. It's like uh, all of them had their, their advantages and disadvantages, of course, but I think if I had to, if I was forced to, to make that one choice, it would probably have to be Berlin because that was a, a seminal moment in European and world history. I mean, the wall fell, Germany reunified. My background focus in European history had always been Germany, modern Germany. So it was almost like a gift from heaven, you know, to to be there, to experience that personally. And I was able to draw on my background as a German historian, a lot of the reporting and the work I did there. And it was, uh, it really, things came together and it was just a fascinating time to be there.
0: Yeah. I experienced it from a distance because I was a copy editor in the newsroom at the time. So Mm. naturally, uh, you know, it was uh, from a remove. Was there a particular memory that stays in your mind when, when you, when somebody
1: says, you know, the day the wall fell, is there something that you remember? <laughs> it's, it's almost an embarrassment. Uh, what <laughs> happened was uh, we were sitting at home and my wife said, you know, you better go down to the wall see what's going on there. You know, And, and I, so I said, yeah, you're right. And it was, I think this was the day after the wall uh, opened up. It was that the following evening. So I took, she had a very nice camera. And I took that with me and I went down and of course on the, 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 what they call the S-Bahn, the, the, the subway and, and, and uh, stations, the cars were getting more and more crowded the closer you got to Berlin. So then I got out, I wandered around, I, you know, took some pictures, and then I got back on. I had some very interesting impressions of what was going on. And then I got the the, the subway car to, to ride back out to where we lived, and it got so crowded. I noticed that you know you got jostled a lot. And I noticed when I got back to the um, the station where I uh, disembarked. I looked down and the, the lens had been separated from the camera, exposing all the film that was inside. So I lost oh, all those personal no. pictures. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, so, uh, uh.
0: so,
1: so one of the things I remember, aside from all the people climbing on the wall, you know, and, and chipping away bits and pieces of it, uh, it uh, it's that sort of embarrassing moment. You know, the one that, gee, golly, <laughs> it might have been.
0: So. <laughs> absolutely absolutely well let's let's move into the cold war thriller series and and Mm. talk a little bit uh your the latest book is berlin walls which is set uh going from the fall of the wall to the building of the wall it's set in 61 at that
1: point in history what's what was the status of of the wall at that point well it's at that point it's just going up you know it's it's i think if i remember correct i've been working on the next book in the series but uh, as i think back he gets to berlin uh, a, a couple weeks after the wall has started, it's not the initial day, it's not August 13th. It's, I think it's early September when they're trying to make the transition, these Germans and the Soviets are trying to make the transition from basically some barbed wire, barbed wire and checkpoints to a, a real wall. And uh, they're, they're working on the construction to it. And he, uh, he goes to Berlin with a mission to uh, help with the exfiltration of a KGB officer, one who appears in earlier uh, stories. Um, and of course, up until August 13th, that wouldn't have been a problem because there was you had know, free movement between the sectors of Berlin, and uh, you had many east, east Germans, for instance, lived in East Berlin but worked in West Berlin. So uh, they, he arrives there, and they, they, they go, "Gosh, I guess we've got to replan this," thing, you know. And that's what they do initially: is to how do they rework this to get him out and uh, and address those challenges. Then his mother, his, uh, his wife's parents come along; they've been living in the east. And they say, gee, we want to get out now, too. <laughs> so I got to work about this, too. Now. So um, that's where things are at. You know, they're, they're, the construction is underway. I, I try and catch that as to when he goes through the checkpoints that have set up, he basically drive it through a construction zone. Flat, you know, the, the big, you know, lights and, and construction going on, all the materials built up, you know, little construction huts and whatnot. So that's
0: yeah. where we're at
1: as the story opens, yeah. Okay.
0: And your hero, Carl Beyer, what's he like as a person when we encounter him in the
1: book? Actually, I, I'm glad you asked that. Cause I think one of the things that I try and do with these books is to dispel the notion that, uh, these spies are superheroes, you know, always quick with a gun. Uh, and they prefer the, the fast cars, the loose woman kind of thing. Uh, they're usually family men and they're folks just like you and me. Uh, they obviously have a certain degree of dedication and training and, uh, there's a lot of training at the agency that there's, a, it's a big focus of things and so keep re- so re-examining is how we do our training. Do we need to change things? Do we need to update things? So he's got that. What, at the end of the day, he's a guy who likes to go home to his wife or his family, his house. And uh, he's got a very good relationship with his wife. In fact, she is from Germany. He meets her in the first book in the series, Tears of Innocence. And so she's German by birth, um, and, but she accompanies him to come back to Berlin because she had been there after the war. And in the, the immediate post-war days, so he. Um, uh, but he's a guy who's also very dedicated, very patriotic. But he's not blind. He's not naive. Can't be in, in that line of work. So I think. Uh, but what I really want to convey is he's he's. You might say he's an average Joe, but an average Joe with a, a lot of experience and exposure and training that sort of elevates him to, to work in this particular line of, of employment.
0: Yeah. And what kind of complications does he run into in this particular book? I, I have this impression, obviously, he's a family man and yeah. he has that kind of calm life. And in a, in a way, I, it kind of reminds me every time I see something like an action adventure movie and all that. Part of me is also thinking as they're planning the heist and doing this, putting something together and, and there's going to be guns and violence and all that. And it's like, all well, I can think of is How do you go home and sleep the night before? How do you? I just can't put the two together. So, but what about what about Carl Bayer? What what
1: complications is he facing in this book? Well, in this book, in addition to his uh, having to replan the exfiltration to get this guy out to the West, and then from there out to West, to West Germany, since West Berlin is an island of sorts, um, there are a lot of questions about the KGB officer who's defecting, because he has his own agenda. And he, as soon as they get into the West, he disappears. Mm-hmm. He goes off into Europe somewhere, they think. So, Bayer's got to try and run him down. There are traces of him in Paris and Rome, uh, and a lot of people begin to question this guy's motives, uh, his own agenda. You know, it is: are we getting what we call a dangle? You know, are they? Is he actually working for the other side, just pretending to defect, uh, with uh, nefarious uh, objectives in mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's got to start that out, and himself begins to, to question that himself, which again is is not unusual in this line of work. There is no. We used to tell as analysts; we would tell people that. You can never be 100% certain because you never have all the pieces of the puzzle. You got to do what you can to fill in as many pieces as you can, and then use your own experience and insight to uh, make up for those missing pieces to come up with your analysis. And it's much the same thing. You know, there's always questions. You know, if you're going to recruit somebody, um, what the guy's motive is, what his or her motive is, um, and uh, how successful it's going to be, what kind of access does this individual have, uh, you know, how much of this is. Uh, accurate is truth, how much of it is BS. And uh, and oftentimes you got to go with your gut feeling. So there's never 100% certainty. And Bayer experiences that as this uh, KGB officer, Sergei Chernov, is uh, sort of running around on his own in Europe and leaving this trail. And you're getting a question. Then on top of that, there's an assassin on his tail. But Bayer can never be sure how certain this uh, assassin is as to who he's after and uh, what the relationship between. Uh, his KGB defector and the assassin is the KGB assassin. So he's got to sort all this stuff out. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, as often happens, you know, the bureaucrats and headquarters are raising concerns and questions about what he's up to <laughs> and how he's handling things. So uh, he's got, that's why I call it Berlin Walls, because there's a number of walls in the way, um, not just the concrete one, and, and uh, barbed wire one going up in the middle of the city, but also other walls in terms of Human doubt uh, human uncertainty and uh, you know bureaucratic obstruction that uh, he has to contend with
0: that sounds like a, just like any other of many other novels in which you don't the characters don't know the truth about each other and mm-hmm. the that's part of the story so the, yeah you know this is an espionage story and a thriller story but it's also a very character driven story too then
1: <laughs> yeah I hope that's how people read it yeah very much so.
0: Yeah. Uh, what kind of research did you have to do? It, it seems very difficult. I'm used to doing research on English subjects, but we're mm-hmm. talking German and Russian and, you know, recent stuff, relatively speaking, recent stuff. How yeah. did you do your research?
1: Well, it's, you know, and I have a, I th- I always consider myself as, ha- as having a head start on research because of my background in, in modern European mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. and also the, the years I spent at the agency. But of course, that's not sufficient in itself. So I usually start with some books on, on the period, on the, the, the incidents, you know, like in this case, the ball, wall going up, uh, you know, post-war Germany. I read some of those. Then as a colleague once said, you know, you have two levels of research or two periods of research. You know, first of all, you have the, the basic research you're doing on your story so you can build your character and your narrative. But then you realize there's all these other things you didn't know and that you didn't, hadn't looked up yet because you weren't aware that they were gonna crop up. So then you do a second level of research. And there, you know, you, again, you look for, I like to look for books and, and, and articles or talk to individuals that I think might be able to help. Uh, but then even though I'm an old, you might call him old fart, you know, the, the modern computer world provides uh, some excellent research tools with uh, Google and Wikipedia and whatnot. So you can run down a lot of those details. And then on top of that, my wife, when she reads the manuscript, she always is a, a fact checker for me. And uh, she's noticed a couple of fa- uh, facts that needed to be corrected in later books that I hadn't corrected in earlier books. And so I thought, oh, uh, but anyway, I'm glad I had, was able to catch him at some point. Mm-hmm. I think, for instance, I think in the Hasbro variation, I refer to Heathrow Airport. Uh, but in Budapest Escape, there was no Heathrow Airport yet. It was called London Airport near the hamlet of Heathrow. And it became his report as it expanded and swallowed up that ham so things like that
0: oh yes i under as a as a former copy editor that's the kind of stuff that i would have to try to catch as well so i, I fully understand uh the importance of getting those little details right yeah uh, was there in your research for any of the books for that matter was there anything in particular that either surprised you or were there something that you thought I would love to put this in, but I, there, I have no idea where I can, where I can put well,
1: that. Is I'm something- sure there were. i, I mean, <laughs> try and think for a second here. Um, yeah. Uh, well, in the most recent book, I mean, that's the, the stuff that's freshest in my mind. That takes place in Turkey during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's called the Turkish Triangle. Uh, and there were some, uh, one of the things I had difficulty was finding out what hotels were operating that you know, where he stays. Uh, so I, I think I found one that was around. Then. You know, I've been to Turkey a lot myself, but I, I don't think the hotels I stayed in were around in 1962. Um, but the, the, there's a tower in the, uh, called Galata Tower in, in the section of Galata, which is just across the, uh, the Straits from the, uh, the European section of Istanbul, was is the heart of old Constantinople. And that tower has a lot of history to it. But, and I was surprised when I, I was doing some research to get the setting straight uh, that that was, tower was originally used as a fire um, uh, locator. You know, if people in the in the tower, because Istanbul, like a lot of cities back then, it was almost built entirely of woods. So they had a lot of problems with fires. And that's how the tower was used. I didn't realize that. I, I didn't know what it was used for, but I thought, so that was kind of unique. So I able to, I, one of the characters refers to that in one of his comments on the meeting, you know, as to the the, the origin and history of the tower, the purpose it served, and hopefully... Uh, what they're meeting will serve a similar purpose in a, in a different context. So mm. uh-huh. uh huh. how far are you into the book? Oh, it's with the publisher. Now I just finished the, the copy editing. Oh, uh, they're responding to the, the copy editor's comments. And I, uh, we're looking at mid next May as the uh, release date for that one. Ah, is there a title for it? It's called a uh, Turkish triangle. That's
0: right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's good. I'll, I'll be looking forward to that one because that's, yeah. that sounds like a, another interesting, uh, Kind of another interesting uh, turning point in history. Yeah, it's, and I
1: I was able to, it's been, I've done a lot of work on Turkey in my career and uh, spent a lot of time in Turkey. And I was able to draw on that, all that stuff that I had gotten known about Turkey, the various political dynamics that were really uh, establishing themselves and beginning to branch out in the early 60s. It gave me a lot of fun to play with that sort of stuff in the the story.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. that that sounds great. How much is, when you plan your books out or you plan Carl's career, are you thinking about high, were you thinking about high points like uh, particular crises or do you have
1: objectives in mind or are you just kind of winging it from book to book? No, I I do have certain crises in mind. Uh, When I, the the publisher I had for the private eye novels, I didn't, we didn't really see eye to eye on things. And so I looked for another publisher. Um, I met a a senior editor at a, a writers' conference in Chicago. She, I told her my situation. And she says, well, send me your next manuscript. I'll take a look at it. That was Tears of Innocence. And uh, then I thought, because, I, and I said to my wife, you know, I'd really like to write a book set in post-war Berlin, the immediate days after post-war Berlin. And I said, and I got an opening scene, but I don't really have any characters or story yet. She says, well, I want to use my father's situation. He was stationed in Berlin right after the war as part of Operation Paperclip when they were looking for a German scientist. And uh, it's the thing that brought people like Renner von Brown to the, to the US. And he moved into somebody's house, a German's house. The guy had the exact same name, exact same spelling. And, I, and he never came back from the Eastern Front, but I thought, well, that might be a good point of departure. So I, that's how Carl Bayer starts his life in, in post-war Europe uh, in Berlin. Um, and then that publisher said, we're not doing any more thrillers. So uh, sorry, <laughs> so, okay. So I found a new publisher and uh, they, the, they liked the book and, and uh, the, the new manuscript written, that's Habsburg preparation. And they said, are you gonna make this a series? And I said, well, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it. And, they, and they, they, I said, but you know, there are certain events in post-war Europe uh, in the cold war that would provide a, a convenient setting I think for uh, espionage novels and thrillers. And uh, so that's what I've done is I've uh, when they said well we'd want to offer you a contract but we want to make it for more than one book and I said you got a series and uh, <laughs> so so from there I just said you know I just looked for various points along the way where there were various uh, you know crises like the the Soviet invasion of Hungary in '56 and the the building of the Berlin Wall and the Cuban Missile Crisis and I told my publisher she asked what do you got where's Carl Bayer going next I said I think I got to send him to Vietnam. You know, because that's the things were really starting to to heat up and our, our, our presence there was really uh, building up at the time in, in the early 60s there. So I'll put him in the middle of that some way, I'll find a way, I think. anyway. Now, that's not your Europe, European history. So I'm going to do a lot more background reading uh, on that particular phase, even though I'm of an age where I remember a lot about Vietnam, yeah. You know.
0: Oh, absolutely! But you don't have that ground um, ground level experience in that area that you'll have to you'll have to accomplish some other way. Yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, so it'll be a challenge.
0: Yeah, I think it would also. What you've been doing with your series then is reminding us of those times and those turning points there's an actual historical value in the books that you write Mm -hmm. especially now because you know i we're both of a similar age and we grew up or knew a lot about it but as i talk with my kids you know and they're in their early 20s they don't have the same body of experience to draw from that we have they don't have the knowledge i mean Mm -hmm. it may they may not even recognize these things but and for especially a turning point like Vietnam, in that era, yeah. uh, that's, again, it's, a, it's a, what you're doing is very good work in preserving and telling
1: the story of our times from at that, back, back then. So I tell people, yeah, you know, the, the stories and the characters are fictional, but the settings are real. And I think a lot of the challenges they're facing in terms of uh, geopolitics, uh, U.S. policy uh, are, I try and get those as, as uh, accurately portrayed as possible.
0: Yeah, well, Bill, I want to thank you very, very much for appearing today and talking with us. It's absolutely fascinating. How will people uh, find
1: out more about your books?
0: Well, first of all, let me thank
1: you, Bill, for for inviting me to this. This is this sort of thing is great, and it's and i uh, I understand you're, you're connected to the Mechanicsburg uh, Mystery Bookshop, which is a great. I had a wonderful experience there once on an author's panel, and then the, the COVID-19 hit, so I haven't been able to get back, but I'm hoping to get back at some point. So that's great. Um, they can check my website, which is www.billrapsbooks all one word, Also all lowercase. Uh, I think that's, uh, I also have a Facebook page. And uh, although I tend to, to post less on Bill Raps books for some reason, and more on Bill Rapp, uh, just that Uh, uh, Facebook page so um, or they can contact me on my uh, my email address which is billiamrap 7 at at gmail.com and I'm happy to to discuss things about uh, 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 the books and the characters and where we're going with it or where we've been and uh, so it's uh, you know I, I welcome all comers all readers. That's great Bill
0: thank you very very much and this is Bill Peschel for Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents And thank you all for showing up today. And I hope that your favorite book is the book you're reading right now. Bye-bye. The Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents podcast is sponsored by the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. The store is open with limited hours, plus we accept appointments and offer a drive-by service. The store will also ship books to your home, including those from the Special Press Mystery Line, including our annotated editions of novels by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. To learn more, visit the store at www.mysterybooksonline.com. And thank you for listening.